You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number six. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Bensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. My guest today is Art Middlecoff. Art and his wife, Barbara, have been home educating their three children for more than a decade. Over this time, he has been studying Charlotte Mason's writings and attempting to apply her living ideas to his family's homeschool. In this course of time, he has written several essays about Charlotte Mason's theology and philosophy in the two volumes of Essays on the Life and Work of Charlotte Mason, published by Riverbend Press. He walks in Mason's theological tradition as a member of an Anglican church near Detroit, Michigan. Art also leads product development for a Chicago-based software company. This episode is sponsored by Newbie Tuesday, the monthly newsletter for Charlotte Mason enthusiasts. Written with beginners in mind, Newbie Tuesday is deep enough to refresh experienced Charlotte Mason educators as well. Each issue is devoted to a single topic, some part of Charlotte Mason's philosophy. There's a letter from the editor, an article introducing the philosophical underpinnings, another article on the practical applications, and then yet another article on transitioning older students to the concept or practice. It's also packed with a bunch of resources for further reading around the web, in books, as well as practical tools for implementation. Best of all, it's free. So head on over to newbietuesday.net. That's N-E-W-B-I-E newbietuesday.net and subscribe. In today's episode, I interrogate Art and happily he complies. For a long while now, I've had some questions about how we do Bible lessons and whether there is a deep, effective, and yet non-analytical way to teach scripture. Art has done a lot of thinking on this subject and he turned out to be the perfect person to talk to. And so without further ado, let's get to it. And we'll start right off with Scalay RDA. So do you have anything that you're reading right now that you can tell us about? Yes. So one book that I am reading now is called uh, The Cloud of Witness. And this is a devotional guide that Charlotte Mason gave to teacher graduates from her teacher college. And oh, it was yes. really I've heard of it. Yeah, so Nancy Kelly republished it uh, less than a year ago. I had been interested in this book, and I had tracked down like a, an, an original copy of it uh, sometime before, but it's a fantastic devotional because it follows the church calendar. Um, so uh, okay. right now we're in Lent, for example, so it has readings about Lent. What's different is there's oftentimes you can find something that's a great devotional for Advent or a great devotional for Christmas. It's hard to find something that takes you through the entire year because once you're done with Easter, you kind of get into what they call ordinary time in the church calendar. It's harder for a a devotional guide to kind of figure out what to do during ordinary time. The (laughs) thing I love about the Cloud of Witness is that there's a specific theme per week. So every week deals with a spiritual theme. And so even when you're in ordinary time, 
you still feel like you're going through the rhythm of the church calendar because there's a, a topic that you're getting into every day of the week when you go through it. And then the beauty of it is then when you hit a season like Lent, the weekly topics are ones that tie into the distinctives of the particular season that you're in. So that's one thing that I think makes it unique. The other thing that I think makes it unique is that Edith Gell, who's the editor, there's almost nothing that's what she's written. She's pulling in excerpts from poems. And some of these are spiritual poems, but not all of them. They're from a huge variety of sources. So she was so well read, the editor of this book, that she was able to assemble examples from poetry from all different ages and types of writers and things that tie into the theme for the week. I think the second week of Lent where the topic was temptation. And I remember getting about halfway through the week and thinking to myself, you know, nobody could write this today. Because I read it and I thought, of course, like any Christian, I struggle with temptation. But when I read these poems about these writers and the way that they describe the battle of temptation, I thought, you know, it's like I'm in play school and these guys were out on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. They knew what it meant to really be a soldier for Christ. It humbled me in my spiritual walk, but it also inspired me to say there's something more, there's something deeper, there's something richer, and I want to get in touch with that. So it's wonderful to find a book that brings that out. These are daily readings? Are there twice daily readings? Or Yeah, they're daily readings. Each day is just one page. You can read it in five minutes, theoretically. Mm-hmm. I can never read it in five minutes because what I find, invariably, I have to read it twice. Almost like I read it the first time kind of with my left brain to be like, what are these words saying? And then, and then I read it a second time, and then it's when it, it grabs me. I'll be honest with you, not every poem, but uh, a good three quarters of them. I'll read it the second time and then I'll suddenly realize, oh my goodness, this is what this poem is saying. And and it just, it will move me. It's remarkable to just, to get this these little, short, powerful doses of heart material every day. So it's five or ten minutes of an investment of time, you know, then you're with the church around the world who's going through the the Christian year. Oh, I love that. I'm going to have to get a copy of that. I've been looking at it. I didn't realize it was on Amazon, though. So that would be, yeah, I'll have to make an order. Uh, Well, my school RDA (laughs) is The Story of King Arthur and His Knights by Howard Pyle. It's been so interesting. This is, I don't know, the third or fourth time that I've read this. I usually read this with my children when they're around age 11, and we read it together out loud. I really enjoy doing this with my son, but I wasn't sure how my next child was going to respond. She's a little bit of a tougher crowd, I guess I would say. And so reading it aloud with her and hearing her observations about it, I, I guess around the age 11, it seems like my children seem to come into themselves and start to blossom a little bit. And so experiencing the book together has been just really enjoyed it. And we've been doing only about a chapter a week. So we've been doing it for kind of a long time now. And It's been really fun to have this little mother-daughter book club with this book. It's one of those books that doesn't grow old. I don't get tired of reading it aloud to each child or anything like that. That's fantastic. I love Howard Pyle. Men of Iron and Otto of the Silver Hand are two books that I read years ago, and yet images from those books come back to me still. And um, it's another one of those things that I feel like, I don't know that anybody's producing stories like that today, because there's a degree of of honor and heroism and self-sacrifice and chivalry that seems to be vanishing from our culture. And and it seems like you have to reach into the past nowadays to find it. Yeah, I agree. One thing I have secretly been hoping is that so many of these children that, that are being educated at home using some of these older books might actually be the next generation that is able to produce that level of literature. 
even that level of history writing, it's very hard to find a well-written history book for the modern era because (laughs) this era of history has to be more recently written. And finding a well-written book that covers this era is just incredibly difficult. You can find it sometimes for adults, but written for late elementary is kind of a different story. And so it's been kind of my secret prayer that these children will grow up to produce that level of history writing and that level of literature and be able to embody some of those virtues that we see in these older books once again. That's my hope for the future. That's great. We need to live in the land of hope. Yes, that is certainly true. Well, we're going to move on to our topical discussion because it's a big one, and I know you have a lot to say about this. I just thought I would quickly try to frame this for our listeners. It's probably been about the last 18 months that I've really been thinking about this and praying for someone to discuss it with, honestly, because it's been something that I've mulled around in my mind. And and I heard you on another podcast. I think it was the Delectable Education podcast, and I don't even remember what the question was, but they asked you a question when I heard your answer, and it was very brief. I just thought, that's the guy. (laughs) That's the guy I need to talk to about this issue. So I was so excited by your answer, even though I don't remember it. I just remember I could tell you had thought about this a lot. For me, I didn't start out using Charlotte Mason's language, which she uses synthetic or synthesis when she's thinking through the holes. I started out because my favorite book is Poetic Knowledge by James Taylor. So James Taylor in his book is, I think, referring to a type of knowledge that's identical or at least very similar to what Miss Mason is referring to. And I'm not going to read the whole passage from him, but he says things like, it's not a knowledge of poetry, but it's poetic. It's sensory, emotional. It's an experience of reality. It indicates an encounter with reality that is non-analytical. It's something that's perceived as beautiful or spontaneous, mysterious. What else does he say here? He says, it's a spontaneous act of the external and internal senses with the intellect, integrated in whole rather than an act associated with the powers of analytic reasoning. His whole book is basically making an argument that we need to have this intuitive, holistic sort of knowledge that precedes analysis. So then, let's see, I have read The Liberal Arts Tradition by Kevin Clark and Robbie Jane, and they call it musical education. They talk about it being a joyful engagement with reality and the idea that the emotions are fully engaged, that we are sowing seeds which grow into a lifelong love of learning. Uh, Let's see, what else do they say here? I'm just kind of flipping through their book. Musical education is soul craft carried out properly. It tunes the soul, makes one receptive to truth and goodness. They're talking about this intuitive form of learning formative and foundational for a properly tuned soul. For me, those kinds of thoughts actually preceded my experience with most of Charlotte Mason's work. Well, not liberal education, but poetic knowledge did. And so when I read Charlotte Mason's work, I immediately saw that what she was talking about was so entrenched in the classical model, this idea that something that is not analysis precedes analysis and does this for good reason. So In volume five of Charlotte Mason, she just makes a really brief comment that I thought was so interesting. She says that the first three lusters, there's a note on the Ambleside website that says a a luster is French for five years. And so three lusters would be 15 years. It says it follows that the first three lusters belong to what we may call the synthetic stage of education, during which his reading should be wide and varied enough to allow the young scholar to get into living touch with earth knowledge, history, literature, and much besides These things are necessary for his intellectual life and are especially necessary to give him material for the second stage of his education, the analytic, which indeed continues with us to the end. 
So when she talks about Bible in volume six, she's urging, let's see, on page 165 of volume six, she's urging what she calls a poetic presentation of the life and teaching of our Lord. And she ends that section by basically saying, let me find it. We have analyzed until the mind turns in weariness from the broken fragments. We have criticized until there remains no new standpoint for the critic. But if we could only get a whole conception of Christ's life among men, and of the philosophic method of his teaching, his own words should be fulfilled, and the Son of Man lifted up would draw all men unto himself. Not only did I think that was beautiful, I was thinking about what I've seen, and it's sort of like we fall off the horse on either side. So on the one hand, there are some of us who are so afraid, I think, to stumble into analysis too early that we almost do very minimal teaching in these areas, if that makes sense. But then on the other hand, some decide this is too important not to have analysis at really young ages. And so the reason why I wanted to have you on is because I felt like Charlotte Mason in Volume 6 is very obviously saying that she thinks that there is a middle road where you can actually walk that golden mean, so to speak, <laughs> and have a robust Christian teaching, but it's not analytical. And so that's really what I wanted to hear from you, because I know you've thought about this a lot, is how all that works together and what she was actually doing. So those are the kinds of questions we're going to touch on today. Before we talk about what she did do, I want to know if there was anything that she was kind of making as an assumption that she is not going to mention as part of her method because she's going to assume that the families are doing those things at home. Thanks for that great introduction. Those are some great sections of Charlotte Mason's writing that you've referred to. A little bit of a caveat here is I personally haven't read James Taylor's book on poetic knowledge. I haven't read um, the other book that you referenced that talks about the music knowledge. But uh, what I have done is I have read Charlotte Mason, and I've read Charlotte Mason a lot, and I've studied it a lot. So I, I can talk about that, but I won't be able to draw as many comparisons. So I think it'll be up to you to kind of tell me that lines up with what, you know, what you've seen as being defined as poetic knowledge, and we can kind of compare notes about that. Sure. Now, in terms of your question about the background, I would say that I don't think that Charlotte Mason held back very much. So if you look at her six um, education volumes, there are places in those volumes where she talks about the home life for children in the family. She includes in there things that uh, she expects that parents are going to be doing with children. This would include children who are going to ordinary schools. So she still is giving a lot of guidance about what she thinks is the responsibility of parents. And that includes things like reading aloud together, including reading poetry together, developing the child's aesthetic sense, training the child in what she calls intellectual culture, developing a heart of gratitude, kindness, and love in the child, providing a moral education. She's saying, parents, these are things you need to be doing. So she even advises, for example, that families will be together on Sunday afternoon you know, reading poetry together. Mm. She's saying, look, your kids in school, they'll learn some poetry, but they're not going to learn how to have a real personal aesthetic taste for certain poems. So they're saying that's what you do on Sunday. 
Because on Sunday, you gather the family around and you read the poems that you love as a family. And you develop that deeper personal relationship with the poets that your family is about. So I think that when Charlotte Mason is talking about Bible training and Bible instruction, the vast majority of what she was advocating you'll find in print in her books, if that answers the question. Sure. So they need to read Parents and Children? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that eventually you want to read the whole thing. I mean, I think all, all six volumes. I mean, the the section in particular that talks about family life, there's plenty of that in the parents and children, but there's also a, a significant section in volume five pages 196 to 232, which go through a lot of detail there. And I find that section is very, very helpful to read. I would recommend certainly reading eventually through all of Charlotte Mason's books. And um, it doesn't happen overnight, but nor does raising a family doesn't happen overnight either. And, you know, we have our children for 18 years or maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less. And so that's certainly plenty of time to, um, you know, to do a careful reading of, of what Charlotte Mason has to say about it. True. So do you think the categories of synthesis versus analysis apply well to this discussion about Bible lessons? Certainly, yes. I think to answer that question carefully, I think we need to take a step back and I think we need to look at what did Charlotte Mason mean when she talked about the terms synthetic and analytic. Because remember, she was writing between 1885 and 1923. So a lot of the stuff that she's written is more than 100 years old. And I think we can have a tendency to look back in the telescope and find at the other end of the telescope a mirror that's just showing our own reflections back to us. I think we have a tendency Mm. to want to find in history what we already believe. And so I want to try to do what we can to look at what Charlotte Mason meant by those words. And I think there's three lines of evidence that we can take to try to understand what, what she meant by synthetic and analytic. And I think the first line of evidence is to look at the history of those terms. Do those terms have a history in and of themselves? And it turns out there was a philosopher who first introduced the term synthetic reasoning as opposed to analytical reasoning, and that was Immanuel Kant. And he published his idea in 1781. I think with Mason being connected to a lot of intellectual ideas and being very well read, it's likely that she was either familiar with the distinction as Kant expressed it, or maybe she was familiar with it as somebody had taken it and developed it from Kant. But I think it's helpful to go back to the source. So I, I read what Kant had to say about it, what he described as analytical judgments, are judgments where you know you have a subject and you have a predicate. And in an analytical judgment, the predicate can't say anything more or go beyond a concept that's in the subject. The subject, which is kind of your given, may have things in a confused manner, may have information buried inside it, it may have some things lumped together. But the only thing that analysis can do is go back to that source and either eliminate confusion, organize it, clarify it, dig into it. That's all analysis does. So Kant said, by contrast, you start with a subject and you have a predicate, but with synthetic judgment, you combine another predicate. You're basically drawing a conclusion that can't be derived from your subject alone. You cannot use just pure logical deduction when you're doing a synthetic reasoning. With synthetic reasoning, you have to do some inductive reasoning. You have to draw from experience. 
you have to say, okay, well, I know fact A and I know fact B, and I'm going to use synthetic reasoning to draw a connection between those two and to discern a new truth. And so for Kant, he said that any real progress in knowledge can only be done by synthetic reasoning. Kant even thought that math was synthetic reasoning. Now, that's a little bit surprising to us nowadays because we'd be hard-pressed to think of any subject that might be more analytical than right. <laughs> but, but it's interesting that Kant said, well, in math, you're actually combining ideas. So I think that that's a helpful background because I think that we can find traces of that through Charlotte Mason. So then the second line of evidence about what Charlotte Mason understood by those terms is that there's a short paragraph where she talks about an analysis. I love this paragraph. One, one thing I want to mention is that Charlotte Mason often uses the word analyze and criticize interchangeably. And when she says criticize, she doesn't mean criticize in the sense that we use it today of finding fault with something, but in the more traditional sense of criticism as the word for analyzing literature. So for example, we hear of, of higher criticism or form criticism, which is a way of approaching a text. So when she says criticize, she really kind of means analyze in that sense. So that's one piece of background. The other piece is Remember that one of her favorite ways to describe education, and this is the ninth principle in her famous educational creed, where she lists a number of principles. The ninth principle, she says that the mind or the person is a spiritual organism with an appetite for all knowledge. This is its proper diet with which it is prepared to deal and which it can digest and assimilate as the body does foodstuffs. So this analogy, I think, was Charlotte Mason's favorite analogy for education. It's this idea of the child or the person as this spiritual organism where physically children come into the world and they know how to eat. They love their food, they eat it, they digest it, they grow from it, it becomes part of them. That is the best analogy for education. Children are born into the world and they love knowledge, they have a natural curiosity, they consume ideas. You don't teach them how to eat them, they just consume them, they digest them, they assimilate them, they become part of them, and they grow from it. She uses her synonym for analysis. She uses it in one section where she's elaborating on this analogy. This is from volume 5, page 295. And she says, Let us who teach spend time in the endeavor to lay proper and abundant nutriment before the young, rather than let them criticize and examine every morsel of knowledge that comes their way. Who could live if every mouthful of bodily food were held up on a fork for critical examination before it be eaten? <laughs> What would happen if your children, if you, you made them analyze and critically examine every piece of food on their fork before they could eat it? It would be tiresome. It would take the joy away. It would take the fun away from eating. Because the delightful thing about food is not to study it, but is to eat it. And so Charlotte Mason, I think, was saying that about knowledge. The delightful thing about knowledge is not to analyze it and criticize it and study it, but it's to consume it. So I think when she says just consuming knowledge, I think that that ties into what Kant said about how synthetic knowledge comes from experience. How do you get experience? There's only one way to get experience. It's not by analyzing things, it's by experiencing things. 
True. And so, you know, another way that I like to look at it is when I see my son, I have a a 16 year old. And when I see him at a sports event, I I look around and I see so many other parents getting out their cameras and filming their children's performances. But I never do that. I don't want to film the moment. I want to experience the moment. I want to savor the moment. If you examine everything and analyze it before you consume it, we run the risk of draining it of its vitality. And I think Charlotte Mason wanted children to experience knowledge and consume it directly. Wow, I love that. And then I think the third line of evidence for what Charlotte Mason meant by the word synthetic versus analytic is to actually look at where she used the word synthetic. And I did a search across her six homeschool volumes, her six poetry volumes, her book of devotional meditations, and all of her geography books. Oh, wow. So That's exciting. (laughs) uh, It would be surprising, the result. Across these thousands of pages, thousands of pages, she only uses the word synthetic in four distinct sentences. That's a small number of sentences for a lot of words. Now, one of the sentences, one of the four, she's mentioning that the poet Goethe had a synthetic mind. So I want to set that one aside because that's not as informative. Two of the four sentences come from the section that you were talking about from volume five about the synthetic stage and the analytic stage of education. And I want to come back and talk about that later. The last sentence, the fourth one, which I think is the most important and is quite pertinent to our discussion, and this sentence is actually repeated verbatim in three different books that she wrote. And it's the very sentence right before what you read about how we have analyzed. So uh, Mm -hmm. she says, we are at present in a phase of religious thought, Christian or pseudo-Christian, when a synthetic study of the life and teaching of Christ may well be of use. We have analyzed until the mind turns in weariness from the broken fragments we have criticized. By the way, there's that synonym for analyze. We have criticized until there remains no new standpoint for the critic. But if we could only get a whole conception of Christ's life among men and of the philosophic method of his teaching, his own word should be fulfilled, and the Son of Man lifted up would draw all men unto himself. When you look at the actual occurrences of the word, half of the sentences, the actual instances of the word, are this one phrase, a synthetic study of the life and teaching of Christ. So what she is saying here is that in our Bible study in particular, please, let's stop analyzing the broken fragments, but instead let's get a whole conception of Christ's life among men. And when we do that, when we go to synthesis, we get to the kind of increase of knowledge that Kant was talking about. And in doing so, according to Charlotte Mason, the end result is that the Son of Man will be lifted up and draw us unto himself. Well, I think that's a good time for us to talk about how Charlotte Mason actually did her Bible lessons. Can you give us some practical examples of what she's talking about? Yes. Fortunately for us, there is a record of what a Bible lesson looked like in her schools. And we find this in um, a book called In Memoriam. Various writers who knew her well were contributing little kind of eulogies and articles about her for this book. And one of the pages of In Memoriam describes what a Bible lesson looked like in her schools. And I'm going to quote directly from this section of the book. First, the Bible passage to be studied is read in the Gospels and then narrated. That's step one. Step two, the children then set to work to understand the passage more fully by comparing the different accounts and by bringing all they know to bear upon it. 
Sometimes the teacher asks questions or points out some new aspect, but more often she learns a great deal from the children. Step three, when the teacher and the children have found out all they can, the verses referring to it in The Savior of the World are read by the teacher and narrated by the children. That's what In Memoriam says. Now, I want to go back and look at those steps, and I want to talk about how each one of them is fundamentally synthetic, and here's why. So step one is to read the gospel passage and then immediately to narrate it. I think that in Charlotte Mason's philosophy, narration is the fundamental synthetic reasoning. Because when you read and then narrate, you narrate after a single reading, and there's no question and answer, there's no rereading or discussion. It is the child directly experiencing the text. And then the child recounting what was experienced from the text. And in Charlotte Mason's view, that is kind of the essential act of consuming and digesting knowledge. Then step two is to compare the different accounts. This is talking about the Gospels, and to compare different accounts, I'm guessing, means to look at parallel passages in the Gospels. And then it says to bring all they know to bear upon it. And remember back to our definition of synthetic, that's taking one predicate and another predicate and saying, hey, these link together. And it's not the teacher who's directing it. The students are bringing what they know to bear upon it. Step three is they read from the Savior of the World. Now, the Savior of the World is the six-volume poetry set that Charlotte Mason wrote, which is her devotional poetic commentary on the Gospels. When she talks about a synthetic study of the life and teaching of Christ, she uses that in the introduction of the Savior of the World. She wrote the Savior of the World to answer that call. She put forth the Savior of the World to represent the non-analytical study of the four Gospels. In her view, this was the synthetic study of the life and teaching of Christ that she said would help us to get a whole conception of Christ's life among men. And so when step three was to read the Savior of the world, that's basically the step is to read the synthetic study. And then what happens next? They read it and then they narrate it. So we end again with the reading the poem and then narrating it back which is that process of synthetic learning. By definition, when we look at, well, what what is an analytical commentary versus a synthetic commentary? If we want to know what Charlotte Mason would say about that, I think by definition, in her view, the gold standard for a, a commentary that exemplifies synthetic reasoning is the savior of the world. Wow, that's interesting because that section that you read and I read at the beginning about right after it says in the son of man lifted up would draw all men unto himself. She says, and I didn't ever understand what she meant. She says, it seems to me that verse offers a comparatively new medium in which to present this great theme. I never understood really what she meant by verse. I mean, she quoted poetry and somehow my brain didn't put it together. Yeah. that That's what she was doing in Savior of the World. Yes, that's exactly right. And that brings in the second dimension of what the Savior of the World is about. And it's interesting because you were probably reading from volume six of the Home Education series, which is her philosophy yeah. of education. That paragraph is copied from her introduction to the Savior of the World, both volumes one and volume two. There's quotes around it. And I always wondered where she was quoting from. I could tell she was quoting herself, (laughs) but I wasn't sure where it came from. Oh, this is fascinating. And so that raises the question, why did she say verse? 
when she wrote The Savior of the World, why didn't she write a commentary in prose? And it's a real question because in 1898, she also wrote a devotional commentary on the first seven or eight chapters of the Gospel of John, and it's known as the Scale How Meditations. It's a beautiful devotional commentary, but it's all in prose. So she made the choice to shift to poetry. Why did she do that? The next sentence in in the introduction to the Savior of the World, she says, It seems to the writer that verse offers a comparatively new medium in which to present the great theme. And here's why. It is more impersonal, more condensed, and is capable of more reverent handling than is prose. And what Wordsworth calls the authentic comment may be essayed in verse with more becoming diffidence. Again, the supreme moment of a very large number of lives, that in which a person is brought face to face with Christ, comes before us with great vividness in the gospel narratives. And it is possible to treat what we call dramatic situations with more force and at the same time more reticence in verse than in prose. I mean, it's a lot that she said there. I want to kind of unpack it a little bit. What does she mean by that? Why did she pick poetry? And I think what she's basically saying is there are some things that you can express in poetry that you just can't quite express in prose. And remember at the start, I was talking about, you know, how I read The Cloud of Witness and these little poems in there. And I would read it once and I would get what the words were saying, but then I would read it a second time and somehow the words were no longer logical propositions that I was reading. Suddenly they were touching my heart. Mm What is it about poetry that does this? My favorite explanation I have is a quote by Francis Bacon. This is what he said. Poetry seems to endow human nature with that which lies beyond the power of history and to gratify the mind with at least the shadow of things where the substance cannot be had. Poetry is deservedly supposed to participate in some measure of divine inspiration since it raises the mind and fills it with sublime ideas by proportioning the appearances of things to the desires of the mind and not submitting the mind to things like reason and history. So let me tell you what I think Francis Bacon means by that. When we write in prose, we're writing from what we've experienced in the here and now, the real world. Reason and history, we're writing about describing what the eyes see, the ears hear, what we know to be real and tangible around us. But we have been created, as Ecclesiastes says, we have eternity in our hearts. Deep down inside, we're spiritual beings who know that there's a better place for us than what we have on earth. There's a place that's not touched by the fall and not touched by the curse. Now, reason and history can't find those things because no matter where we look, we can't really find that eternity, but yet we know that it's there. And according to Francis Bacon, poetry is not limited. It's not tied to history and reason and the senses. And he says that poetry can speak to that part of our heart, our imagination that knows that there is something better. And so poetry is able to express some of the truths that we can't get through any other means. And I think that that lines up with what we see in the Bible, because God in his wisdom chose to inspire vast quantities of the text of sacred scripture are in poetry. Oh, true. Why did he choose to do that? Because poetry speaks to the eternity in our hearts. Hmm. Oh, wow. I have looked at her old programs, and that is what made me decide to start using Patterson Smith's commentary. So did she actually switch from using something like Patterson Smith to Savior of the World? Or was she just depending on the ages? Sometimes it was Patterson's because I know Patterson Smith is more prose for sure. 
And yet I still found him to be very refreshing compared to modern commentaries. So Savior of the World is not intended for young children. Okay. So she wrote the six volumes from the evidence that I've seen, but I, I haven't really studied the forms so well, so I don't know for sure. But I believe that her students would go through one volume a year. That would take you about six years. So I would imagine that it would correspond to, in our context, would probably be the seventh grade to twelfth grade type of thing of when you'd go through the Savior of the World. I don't think it's really works as well for younger than that. So I think thirteen or fourteen is when you'd want to start reading it. I will tell you that the poems are written rich and beautiful, and I, I read them devotionally myself. It's mm. something that, that is for the young adult or the mature adult. So in terms of commentaries that were used with the younger children, the commentary that you're using, I'm sure, is great and one that she recommended. But yes, I think that there was a shift in the upper grades. What I was doing with my own children, and my oldest is in eighth grade. So we're just now entering the stage of life where I would start thinking about something like Savior of the World, I guess. But they go all the way down to age seven. I was trying to do a little bit of Old Testament and a little bit of New Testament, and I couldn't discover a quote-unquote Charlotte Mason commentary for Old Testament. And so I just bought something that was written more recently, but it was directed more towards youth. And then I was using Patterson Smith. And the distinction to me was fascinating. And about halfway through the first term, I quit using the, the Old Testament commentary, the modern commentary. And I can't completely even articulate why I did that other than that. I felt like my children were getting disinterested very quickly in the Old Testament, and I really didn't want that to happen. So part of it was just to protect them (laughs) from that, because I think that's a really dangerous thing. But Patterson Smith has just been so fascinating to me because somehow in his commentary, he manages to really harness the imagination. My children, as they narrate his commentary, it seems like they're experiencing that time, that place. They're coming to imagine it. There's something very powerful. And I felt like the other commentary was very analytical in in the sense that it was stating facts in a way that I didn't feel like their imagination was engaged, that they were actually visualizing anything. You know, I mean, the Old Testament's very powerful and it's so sensual in many ways. I mean, you've got the burning of incense and the way the priests are dressed. And I mean, there's all these things that could be imagined if someone commentated on them correctly. And that just wasn't happening. It's been really interesting this past year trying to imitate more of her practices than I ever have in regard to our Bible lessons. How very quickly, even though I can't exactly put my finger on what it is, the commentary she chose was much more powerful than the one that I chose. It's fascinating that you would describe it that way. If I were to summarize what are the two things that have most stood out to me as I've read Mason's poems on, on the Gospels, The first thing I would say is the poems attempt and succeed in bringing the reader into the scene. So uh, Charlotte Mason will bring out details that help the reader recreate the emotional and personal content of whatever scene it is that's being read in the gospel. It does so, I think, by bringing in the imagination. Mm. And I think that's what you were saying J. Patterson Smith does. And, you know, honestly, that can scare people sometimes because she will (laughs) start to speculate a bit. And remember, analysis means you can kind of repackage the words in your source. That's pretty much all you can do with analysis. You can split them up, you can look at what they mean, you can tease out different combinations, different ideas, but that's as far as you can go. But Mason, in her poems, will say, okay, here's the scene, and this is what the gospel said. Let's start imagining some other things. What was happening in nature? So when it talks about Jesus and the disciples and how the disciples picked the heads of grain on the Sabbath, 
Charlotte Mason will start to contemplate in her poem the grain and the time of year and what's happening and how does it smell and what do you see. Mm. That is getting way outside of analytical territory because it's starting to say that when I'm walking through the fields of grain, these are some of the things that I experience. I'm going to attach my experience to the words of scripture and it's going to become a richer meaning for me. But, you know, that scares people because people say, well, wait a minute, you know, that phrase, that word, you, you can't exegete that. You're not going to find that back in the Greek, so therefore you can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm, an, I'm a very analytical guy. There's a place for exegesis, and I will look at a commentary, and I will look at the Greek, and I will want to figure out what exactly is this passage saying, and there's a place for that. But what Charlotte Mason would say is, that's all well and good, but you're still staring at the piece of food on your fork. You have to eat it. So you can analyze it and you can look at it, but then you've got to consume it. And to consume it means to make it your own. And that means to experience the words. That means to experience the scene. That means to really get into the heart and soul of what Jesus is saying and doing in the Gospels. And it's a powerful thing. It can scare people. But according to Charlotte Mason, that's when the Son of Man gets lifted up. And that's when he draws all people to himself, is when you get to know him as a person, not as a Greek word. I love that. Oh, my goodness. So let's say I'm really analytical and I'm a theology buff and I love theology. My tendency is to start a more analytical form of theology with my younger children. Do you think that's dangerous? I do think that's dangerous. And in fact, one of the things that really influenced me when my children were younger, I read Charlotte Mason. She basically said to not raise up your children to be sectarian. She warned against parents who want to make sure that their child stays faithful to their particular Christian sect. And so therefore is really hammering into their heads specific formulas or the specific rules that will keep them believing precisely what we believe about predestination, about communion, about whatever favorite theological distinctive you're talking about. And what Charlotte Mason says is watch out because the life is not found in the greed. The life is found in the Christ. Use those younger years to help your children fall in love with Jesus. And they will discover the right Jesus and the true Jesus if they're reading about him in the Gospels. The other stuff about making sure that they dot their I's and cross their T's doctrinally in the way that conforms with your particular tradition, there'll be time for that later. But for now, they need to know who Jesus is, they need to know who God is, and they need to know what God did in history. And what God did in history is the same thing, whether you're a Methodist, or whether you're a Calvinist, or whether you're an Anglican, or whether you're a Baptist, the same God parted the Red Sea. And let's let our children get the joy and wonder of God parting the Red Sea. Let's get that part right. Let them know that when their imagination is never going to be richer, fuller, their faith is never going to be stronger or more pure than in those young years. So let them spend that faith and that imagination on the true stories of the Bible. I feel so strongly about that. And so I have sought to do that. The important thing for me is that my children grow up to know and love Jesus. I think we'll just stop there. I mean, I really would love to cut it and end right there at that point, because I just think that is so powerful. Can I just say one more thing? Oh, absolutely. Um, Please. Yeah. Because one question that you had asked about, is there any other modern commentary that uses a synthetic approach? And I just want to mention, again, first and foremost, I would recommend that people read The Savior of the World and adults. And it used to be hard to get, but it's easier to get now. You can get most of the volumes on Kindle. You can get them on PDF. There's even a version now available that I've worked on um, and made available now that if you have a Bible software, like on your iPad or on your computer, you can get The Savior 
Savior of the World poems so that they will show up. You'll get a little indicator in, in, straight within the gospel text of where Charlotte Mason has a poem on that passage. You can click on it and read the poem so it can be integrated into your Bible study. But, oh, wow. But outside of the Savior of the World, I've come across fairly recently another commentary that I actually like a lot by N.T. Wright. He's quite an interesting theologian. Christianity Today refers to him as one of the um, most interesting theologians of our day, quite influential. And he's wrote a commentary series called the For Everyone series. I find that he kind of does the two things that I saw, maybe not to quite the extent of the Savior of the World, but in some areas he gets pretty close. He does encourage, through his writing, encourages the use of imagination to help the scene become real. And I think he also does a nice job of uh, the other thing that Charlotte Mason does in The Savior of the World, which is to connect the individual verses and passages of the scriptures into the wider themes of Christian theology. And I just want to give one short anecdote. When I read the For Everyone book by N.T. Wright on the book of Philemon. Now, of course, I've read the book of Philemon. How, how many times have I read that book? I've read that book dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And I've always thought that that book was interesting. But I will tell you that I have never felt particularly moved by the book of Philemon. But when I read Wright's For Everyone commentary on the book, I will tell you that I will never look at the book of Philemon in the same way because uh, N.T. Wright helped me to see what a deeply moving story Philemon really is. And he also showed me how it connects more firmly to the broader gospel theme. I might have to pick that up, even for just myself and my husband to use. Yeah, just give it a shot. You don't have to get the whole thing at once. Just have a look at it and your mileage will vary, but maybe you'll like it. Thank you. Okay, so our Nitty Gritty Homeschool question was chosen specifically for you because it sounds like you have a very unique situation where you actually share the homeschooling responsibilities with your wife, right? So what I would like to hear from you is just what does that look like? How does that work out in practice through a day or through a week? How the curriculum decisions are made? Just whatever you're willing to share with us. I know that's kind of actually a big open-ended question. Can you share with us? Yeah, so um, my wife is Barbara. And uh, she and I do share the homeschooling. She is at home and I work. Barbara does school during the day on weekdays. I do school, generally speaking, on evenings and weekends. You know, I work a full-time job and I work pretty hard. So I guess one could ask, well, how do I have time to do school on the evenings or the weekends? And I guess the answer would be I make time for it mainly by saying no to a whole bunch of other things that I could be involved in. A lot of guys have hobbies and interests. It's not the season of my life for me to pursue those things. And so I set those aside and I consider it my privilege to be able to spend my free time uh, investing in my children. And so I enjoy and find it very satisfying. I think that men have more time than perhaps we think we do. I remember walking with two of my colleagues and they were talking at great length about a particular TV series that they were watching and uh, had recorded and were able to get through some service so that you know they could watch it on demand. And they knew tons of information about every episode and every character and they managed <laughs> to find time for that. Right. They talked about it on and on and on and then one of them turned to me and said, Art, what do you do? when you're on the airplane 
And I said, I read poetry. They, they both busted out laughing. I don't think they thought I was serious. <laughs> so anyway, um, I do school on the evenings and weekends. The way we break it up between me and Barbara is that I do most of the schooling with uh, my 16-year-old, and Barbara does most of the schooling with my 13-year-old and my 8-year-old. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. I don't like the hands-on stuff as much, so thankfully Barbara does the chemistry experiments with my 16-year-old, oh, wow. and that's a huge relief for me. And there are certain subjects that I I like doing with the younger kids, which I do. For whatever reason, my 16-year-old is doing a lot of what we call the STEM-related things, so science, technology, engineering, and math. Yeah. I have a lot of fun with that, so we're spending a lot of time on pre-calc, physics, chemistry, and doing some programming. I'm uh, in the software industry, so I enjoy that, but he gets his share of reading and other things in as well. Yeah, so that's how we work it out in our family. Great, and so then for curriculum decisions, are you making the decisions over the areas that you're teaching and she's making or do you get together and discuss for the whole year for each child or how, how does that happen? You know, that's a good question. And I think one of the things that Charlotte Mason talked about is how parents have the responsibility to give a liberal education to their children. And by liberal, she meant broad. She basically says that children have a right to be exposed to all these different branches of knowledge. So I, I've taken that to heart. And one of the reasons why Charlotte Mason distributed a curriculum even to home-educated children, because she felt that there were certain books and ideas and things that all children should be exposed to. Because of that, we have made a conscious decision to embrace a curriculum as opposed to just kind of building our own from scratch. And now I would say that we're not you know, legalistic about it. We're not following it 100%. We're following themes and guides that we find in Ambleside Online. Now, granted, we certainly do customize it and we tailor it. And Barbara and I will talk about it and she'll say, well, I don't want to do this book. And I'm saying, well, it's fine. And as our kids have gotten older, I think we've tailored it more and more as they've started to develop their own more distinctive interests. And we've, we've had to kind of tailor it to what they actually have an appetite for. But it's very mutual. Once we agree on the the broad direction. But Barbara's been really nice. She will want my opinion on things and she really wants to make sure that whatever she does with the kids that we're 100% on board and in complete agreement. It's not a difficult thing. We enjoy talking about it and we enjoy reaching the conclusions together and, and, uh, and then following through on it. Great. Thank you so much for sharing with us all of these things, your wisdom. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I feel like I'm finally getting some answers after asking all these questions in my mind for a really long time, honestly. <laughs> I appreciate your time so much. Well, thank you very much, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Sisterhood of the Podcast. A big thank you to those of you who have been giving us five-star reviews. That is awesome. And we're hoping you leave more. So if you haven't already, we'd love for you to go give us a review on iTunes or Google Play or any other app that you're using. If you'd like your question to be featured as a nitty-gritty homeschool question in one of our future episodes, head on over to scalaysisters.com slash homeschool dash question and either fill out the form on that page or leave us a voicemail. I will be back with episode seven in two weeks. In this episode, I have a brainstorming session with Amber Vanderpool, the amazing lady behind the blog Flare of Light. Our discussion focuses on what can be done if you can't meet in person. Are you destined to be alone and isolated forever because you can't join an in-person Scalay Sisters group? Well, no. 
With all the new technology that has come out in the past decade, there are so many options for those of you who can't get away. You'll walk away from episode seven with more ideas than you know what to do with. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon you needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. So he calls. (laughs) Sorry about that. That's all right. That's what editing software is for. (laughs) To allow the young scholar to get into living touch. Oh. (laughs) Oh, my goodness.